0: Hey everyone, welcome back to my podcast, Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit. This is your host, Dr. Steve Sullivan, coming to you from just outside of Philadelphia, where I teach anatomy and physiology at Bucks County Community College. Today's episode is about vision. We got a whole episode just on vision. It's a lot. Um, If you've already started studying anything about the eye and vision, you know this is a big part of the chapter. So we're going to focus a lot of time on it and um, we're going to talk about a little bit of the physics of light, just a little bit, because photoreceptors, which are the sensory receptors in the retina of the eye, only respond to light. That is it. So it's important that we talk a little bit about how light works and then we can discuss a lot about how the eyes work. But before we get into the content of this episode, I want to share with you a conversation I had with an optometrist in my hometown. In fact, he's my optometrist. Dr. Benjamin Rowe is a doctor of optometry in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, and he sat down with me and had a conversation about what it means to be an optometrist, what optometrists do, and what it takes to become an optometrist. Uh, We also talked about some eye pathologies that were pretty interesting as well. I was actually surprised to learn that a very small percentage of what Dr. Rowe does as an optometrist is giving people prescriptions for glasses and contact lenses. There is a lot more that goes into being an optometrist, and I think that you're going to find this pretty interesting. I know I did, and I'm glad you're here to join me for it. So without further ado, uh, let's listen to my conversation with Dr. Benjamin Rowe, optometrist in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. Okay, welcome Dr. Benjamin Rowe from Doylestown. He is an optometrist uh, on State Street in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. Uh, Dr. Rowe, thank you so much for coming.
1: Yes, thanks. Happy to be here. Uh,
0: so I want to get right down to it. So you're an optometrist in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. Um, how long have you been there?
1: Oh, gosh, it's a good question. Um, I, I, in the neighborhood of 15 or 16 years. Uh, oh, wow. Previously... Uh, and other other um, kind of scenarios, but in that location, about sixteen years working for myself.
0: Oh, that's fantastic! Yeah, um, I will let everybody know that that uh, Dr. Rowe is my optometrist, and uh, my whole family's optometrist actually, and we love it there. Um, um, I will tell a quick little story about you before we get into it. That Dr. Rowe actually had glasses made for my son, who we adopted from Thailand before we even brought him home from Thailand. And through the prescription we had from Bangkok, he was able to make glasses for the son we had not yet adopted. And that was like probably over
1: 10 years ago. Yeah, you know, I, thanks for the credit. I'll take all I can get. But honestly, that has more to <laughs> do with, uh, you know, our optician, Alex, who, who handles a lot of that. But he's fantastic and, and we're lucky to have him.
0: Yeah, he is great. That's true. But you did you did look at the prescriptions and all that stuff. Uh, you gave. I, I may
1: a little- I <laughs> may have handed it to him, so I'll, yeah, I'll take that much credit and that much only. Well, that was awesome. Um, so,
0: so uh, tell me what what does an optometrist do exactly?
1: So people ask me that a lot. There's obviously a lot of confusion out there between what's an optician, what's an ophthalmologist, what's an optometrist, and. Um, the lines are, are a little bit blurred between optometry and ophthalmology in the sense that there's a lot of overlap. Um, you know, and I often tell people that you kind of want to think of, assuming, you know, there's different levels of of everybody's job, uh, but assuming you have a, a competent doctor, you should look at your optometrist as your eyeballs family doctor. So when you have an ache or pain or something doesn't feel right, or it's been a year and you want your blood work done or whatever, you know, you don't look up hematologist, you don't look up, the the ache or pain that you think that you have you you go to somebody who can kind of drive your ship and and if you need special assistance then that person will help you coordinate that but you know it's best to think of of a good optometrist as your your eyeballs family doctor somebody who can um either treat you 99 percent of the time in my opinion or if you do need that specialist or surgical intervention um they not only know who you need but you know exactly what number to call and can help grease the wheels there to get that process started
0: That's that's a good way to put it. I like that your eyeballs family doctor. I like that description a lot. Um, So why why did you get into optometry?
1: You know, um, I realized that growing up, I was a science guy. I think you are too. You know, you just you just kind of like it. You you find yourself um, drifting towards sciences in in elementary school, middle school, and beyond. And and um, sometimes at some point in college, you know, I realized that you you know when, when you do science, you end up in one of three. Things you, you either teach it, which I don't have the patience for that. Um, you do research, and I it's just my brain doesn't work in an in a academic way, or you become some sort of, of doctor or clinician or something that in, in a way that helps people, and, and that's the one that kind of like you know appealed to me the most. And, um, like so many things, you know, that your life is determined by these random moments. I went to Penn State undergrad and I, and I took a class just because. Uh, it's based on attendance and just, it was all these different professionals that would come in and they would just spend an hour talking to you about what they did, uh, kind of like this, just in a, in a more of a lecture hall type of setting. And, um, you know, dentists came in and, you know, uh, orthopedic surgeons came in and, and you name it and and you kind of go through and and you kind of start linking the academics and what you're studying to the lifestyle. And I remember an optometrist came in and, um, for whatever reason, it just kind of clicked on a lot of, a lot of, um. you know, buttons for me that, that seemed to make a lot of sense for what I was looking for, and uh, kind of pursued it. And sure enough, it you know, just kind of unfolded and just kept taking the next step, and ended up talking to you. Oh,
0: that's great. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I did a sim. I had a similar class like that when I was in undergrad at Rutgers, uh, which is basically the Penn State of New Jersey, and um, and it was a it was like a seminar course type of thing where a different professional came in, and and I was an exercise physiology major, so there was most of it was physical therapists and occupational therapists and orthopedists and uh, chiropractors and things like that all came in kind of to talk about what direction you might go from exercise physiology. And it was the same thing. It was like, you're either gonna go work in a lab, you're gonna do research, you're gonna teach, or you're gonna be a clinician. And and so, um, yeah, that's a a great course for for students to take, I think. So especially if they're really not 100% sure what specific direction they wanna go.
1: Yeah, it's important. It's one of those courses that I don't think you have to take right it's a course that you, you should take and if you, if you have you know, if you can get up off the couch and go to something that you don't have to do like most things it ends up usually presenting an opportunity at some point and yeah those I, I classes agree. that 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 seem to kind of you know pivot your direction i
0: agree yeah. uh, so what did it take to become an optometrist then
1: um, so you go to a four-year undergraduate, um, you know, college university, and you know, you obviously have to take a lot of sciences and prerequisites. But you you can become a doctor of any type, as you know, as an English major. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. it welcome that that field welcomes a variety of backgrounds. And obviously, you know, you need your fair share of O and you know, all physics and, and all the stuff that you would think that you would need. Um, and then you have an entrance entrance course. I think for optometry is called the OAT um which is you know very similar to a lot of the other tests you'll find mcats or y- y- you name it you know mm-hmm. uh, different versions of the same thing a little bit more physics based i think um i, I think there's some optics but i think as a general whole the population or-, or students tend to kind of view optometry as like you know you're it's not a knock on it but you know the lens crafters are the prohibition and-, and that's not at all how i define um the occupation at all that's right. you know it- it- it's something that optometry is a very wide spectrum. Um, but that's one way that you can play the career. Um, so my point is though that the test is a lot of science, um, some physics and optics, but mostly, you know, just good old, lovely organic chemistry and and math. Yeah. Right.
0: So it's real similar. And then optometry school, how, how long is that?
1: So that's four years, um, four years, years. And, and you do receive a, a, a bachelor after completing your first year, I think it's called vision sciences or something. So there are accelerated programs in certain universities where you can go three years to university and do your fourth year as your first year of optometry, school, which I think a lot of kids did. I personally don't know why you'd want to give up that fourth year of college. Um, No, I don't see the rush to getting into any career, but that's a personal choice. But, um, but yeah, it's a full four years and your last year is is spent in four, three month rotations um, at different types of sites. You do a hospital, site, private practice, um, you do like a low vision or rehab site and, um, one other one that can't remember, but it's, it's a lot more hands-on, um, than the first three years, which are purely academic.
0: So my guess is that most of your practices geared toward prescribing corrective lenses for people. Um, not really, not really. Oh, no, um,
1: okay. I, again, people people think that, you know, and, and I, I get it. it is what it is. And uh, people tend to think of, of my job as glasses. And that's, that's really probably, I don't know, 15% of my job, 20%. Wow. Of my, I mean, every time you come in as part of a regular checkup, the, the the refraction is the process of how you determine someone's prescription. So that's what you think of when you think of pearl vision or something like that, you know, what I need to see better. What are my glasses? Well, unfortunately not everybody's vision is corrected with glasses. You know, people have a lot of variety of problems and, and a lot of the reasons I do a refraction and, and to see what you, your glasses are isn't so much here, go buy glasses as much as, okay, that's one variable off the table. That's as well as you can see if we remove optics as the variable. Well, People have messed up corneas, they have cataracts, they have dry eye, they have macular degeneration, glaucoma, diabetes, and on and on and on, uh, eye turns and so forth. So all, all you do when, you're, when, you're, when you do what I do for a living is someone comes in, obviously, you know, I'm talking about somebody who presents with blurry vision, uh, which is common, but by no means the only complaint we hear. But, you know, blurry vision is the totality of all the problems, all of them. Imagine the light bulb not going on in your house. What do we do? We, we change the light bulb. Well, what if that doesn't work? What if the light still doesn't go on? Uh Oh, you know, maybe check the breaker, but then beyond that I'm clueless. I don't know about you, but I, I don't know what's happening, you know? So that happens a lot. I mean, you, your brain is an electrical machine, you know? So if, if you don't see 2020, there's, there's a reason for it. My job is to find the reason. And, you know, most people, especially in the demographic we serve are pretty health conscious and they're aware of their medical condition and nothing's brand new. So nobody presents like, Hey, I'm 20, 80 out of my right eye. And it's been that way for eight years and getting worse. And I haven't been to a doctor. So most people understand where they're at. Um, but it's, it's, it's far more complicated than, than glasses. So what would be like
0: some of the more common pathologies that you see that are not, um,
1: about, needing glasses um far and away is dry everybody has dry eye i mean gosh especially this time of year you know chap lips dry knuckles and, and dry eyeballs follow so mm-hmm. that that is is not a danger or something i would consider even a pathology except in extreme cases um you know but yeah it's a nuisance it's chronic redness tearing you know people can't see right every time they blink you know they have a different issue it's like having a set of bad windshield wipers in a snowstorm. you just you just they just don't work well um that's very common um Flashes and floaters happen um, Mm. regularly, and that's obviously a sign for retinal tears and detachments um, that requires, you know, dilated visit and and ruling certain things out. Um, Aging population in the United States right now, so the inevitability of cataracts um, Mm. in people's early to mid-60s comes up, and and that's a conversation that is also, you know, responsible. They present with blurry vision, but glasses won't help you, you know, so it's a piece of the problem, but not the whole problem. But I would say those are the big ones. So I'm going to
0: put you on the spot real Go quick, uh, just for just for a couple of things, because you you brought up a couple of, of things that I think are buzzwords for people that they might not know exactly what that is. So yeah, I heard you say detached retina yeah. and cataracts. And I know yeah. that that's probably things that everyone listening to this podcast has heard those terms and sure. might not know what that is. So would yeah. you mind like going through that real quick on on what that actually is?
1: yeah there, there's a there's a laundry list of, of buzzwords and things that i make i think make up a, a pretty healthy top 10 list but so a retina a retinal attachment is, is a significant issue it's it's a it's an urgent issue as well as an important one so um the retina is the tissue it's a very thin tissue that lines the inside of your eyeball and it word like think of it like a wallpaper um and it works like film so light hits it it's an electrical blanket And then everything is collectively sent to the optic nerve, which is just simply a power cord that connects your eyeball and your brain together. It's an easy way to think about it. But you know, when that retina, when that wallpaper gets a tear in it, um, you can imagine the lining of a goldfish bowl lined with like a paper mache or something, and it got a little nick in it. It's not a huge deal if there's a nick in it, right? Everything maintains its integrity and The problem was what happens when water sneaks into that nick and gets between the paper and the glass, then everything starts to kind of fold inwards. You can imagine that. And then you take that metaphor into the eyeball and you have this horrible folding in of the retina into the eyeball, creating a very bad scenario. Okay, luckily for people, there are symptoms, flashes and floaters. Usually it's a risk factor determined by a very highly nearsighted person, minus seven, minus eight, minus nine or up or trauma, you know, you bump your head in a cabinet or, you know, sport or something like that. And, you know, requires a dilated visit where we open the pupil, um, look inside and you can pretty easily see, you know, uh, first day of practice, you could see a retinal tear detachment. So it's not very easily visible. But that requires one of those scenarios that requires a surgical intervention. That's when you come to your family doctor, me for your eye. And then I call my friends at retina and I say, this is the exact scenario. This is where it is, what they need, you know, whether the macula is on or off creating a sense of urgency there. And um, they hit the ground running instead of thumbing through Google and trying to figure out, I think I have a retinal attachment. The vast majority of flashes and floaters are not retinal detachments. They're vitreous detachments, which is the gel Mm. that fills the eyeball and has a far, far less risk profile. But if you don't go to your local eye care provider or whoever that is um, you're guessing and guessing causes stress and inaccuracies and inefficiency in the medical system so that's retinal attachments in a nutshell but that person would need surgical surgical intervention depending if that mac is on or off uh, within a day or two tops you know so that's a quick one so don't mess around with flash and floaters people very important yeah that's good that is good advice
0: um so in the, in the episode, uh, after this conversation, uh, I'm going to be talking about all of that anatomy and, and what that, what that all means. So that's good. really yeah. good. That's a really good, um, preview into, into some of that. So we're also going to talk about the lens. So that leads me to ask
1: you about cataracts. Yeah. Cataracts are first thing to know about cataracts is they're not a disease. Everybody says I have a family history of diabetes, a family history of macular generation. Oh, and a family history of cataracts. Well, having a family history of cataracts is like having a family history of gray hair. You know, we're all, we're all going to get one of those things or in each eye and and, um, it's nothing to be worried about. The word does get lumped into that grouping, um, but you know, of, of disease-based issues, but cataracts belong in the category of gray hair and wrinkles. It's okay. Um, And what happens is just a, a general progressive opacification of your crystalline lens that you're born with. And it, it, it looks very much like when you look through one, it looks very much like those jewel rings that you see in souvenir shops, the tiger eyes or um, cataract, I believe comes from a, word, a Latin word meaning waterfall. So I don't know if I agree with that, but it, it does look kind of the frothing at the bottom of a waterfall in a very extreme cases. The, the predominant thing that you'll see when you look at a cataract is the word yellow. It's, it's definitely a gold yellow and it's like looking through stained glass. You know, it's like me looking through it one way, but the patient sees the same thing looking out. you can imagine when you look out of a stained glass yellowed window and you look outside, you can see it's just not clear. And again, you try, you know, okay, I'm ready for my glasses. Well, you can sit there all day. And and again, the glasses may help 5%, 20%, 95%. And then that the question inevitably comes, well, okay, doc, do I need cataract surgery? And the question is answered by their own, which is to say, well, here's the best I can do with your spectacle correction. Is that good enough? And I don't care. I don't care what they pick as long as they're safe to drive 2040 or better in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, But if you're happy with 2025 vision, 2030 vision, and you're not having any quality of life issues, I'll see you in six months. You know, if you're bothered to death by because you knit or quilt or do firearms or play golf and it's driving you nuts, then by all means, let's go get it done because it's an inevitability doesn't hurt. It's covered by your medical insurance. And um, so it's very much, I try to slap the hand, the patient's hands on the steering wheel and let them drive whenever possible.
0: That's good. I, I like that autonomy. I remember you and I had a conversation in your office years ago, and you you said that I like things to be extremely clear in the way, when I, when I choose things. And a lot of that was, is um, you had mentioned golf and firearms and things like that. For me, it was tennis. Sure. And I like to be able to see that ball coming at me at eighty miles an hour from you know sixty five feet away. Yeah. So yeah. So uh, yeah. Definitely um, a, a personal choice for for things like that. What would what would the the correction for cataract uh, look like?
1: It's a it's a simple procedure. I mean, you're talking in and out of there in 12 to 15 minutes for most for most people these days. So um, you're generally given, and I'll give myself a little margin of error here, as as every cataract surgeon has their own preferences and little variations, and um, so so give a little wide berth to this generic explanation. But um, you know, you're generally from an anesthesia point of view. Um, you're you put into twilight, which means you can see and hear everything. You just, you know, it's like having a few martinis. You don't care what's going on. You know, you're safe, or the anxiety melts away, and, and everybody's afraid of screwing themselves up, but you won't, you know, by the time you realize like you're asking if you're ready to get going, you're already done. Um, but there's a small incision into the cornea after it's been dilated, your your, your iris has been dilated. Um, small incision into the cornea, uh, multiple small incisions just to allow different access points. Um, and your crystalline lens sits inside what's called a, a capsule, which is very similar to think of it, like a Ziploc bag. You know, we have to most, the most difficult part for cataract surgeons is the opening of the anterior capsule, something called a capsule where they make a small, kind of a pulling tear into front of the anterior capsule. And then with tweezers, they create this circular opening, um, takes a lot of skill, a lot of practice. And, um, that's, that's what you're good at when you're good at cataract surgery, essentially it's, it's a very important skill. So that accesses the lens itself and the lens is broken up. Typically there's multiple ways to do it. You can flip it out of there. You can, divide it into sections. You can pull the nucleus out of the lens and then pull the cortex out later. There's a variety of of techniques, as you would imagine, that different surgeons use or have, depending on their preferences and also the lens itself. There's a variety of cataracts. Um, but you want to leave ideally the back of that bag, that capsule intact. You want, it's called a posterior capsule and you want to leave that intact and polish it before you put the implant in. And you want to keep the separation of the anterior and the posterior chambers there. Um, if it breaks, which happens sometimes, there are some complications. Um, it's rare and very fixable, but something that requires certain follow-up procedures to be done. But when that lens is removed, um, whether it's in a, in, you know, these days it's in a small piece, uh, small various pieces or fancy, a fancy vacuum cleaner that essentially sucks up the pieces. And then a, an implant is put into that initial opening of the anterior capsule and fits into the capsule. So it's rolled, it's kind of circularly rolled up like a burrito. And then once we, once they stick it into that capsule, it unfolds like a tortilla and then they position it. And it's there for the next, you know, 2000 years. Wow. And that will do the job of the lens. That will do the job of the lens plus your spectacle correction. So if you're a, you know, the the advantage of that, of course, is, you know, people in the know really want cataracts because again, you know, people like a minus eight prescription glasses and contacts have been a pain in the neck their whole life. Um, Yeah. You replace the power of the lens that you removed, but you also mathematically factor in that minus eight prescription and it's very similar to wearing your distance contact lenses inside your eyeball for the rest of your life. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's, so you don't need reading glasses, really but you know what? T- yeah. Tough nogies you need reading glasses. That's, that's it. There yeah. are options for multifocal lenses. There are options for things like monovision where you see one eye sees far, one eye sees near, but that's certainly something that needs to be discussed on an individual basis.
0: That's uh, that's really interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that the cataract procedure also can take care of your corrective. Lens needs. That's, yes, that's actually now it's really intriguing to me. <laughs>
1: well, that's it. Well, now once you get it, you understand <laughs> the value of cataract surgery. Yes,
0: right. All right. Well, um, I want to thank you so much for your time. You've been super generous, and that has been a really interesting conversation. I think the listeners are going to get a ton out of that. Oh, good. Happy to help you. Thanks you for having me. So, so uh, all right, Doctor Ro. Thank you so much. I will see you soon. I got a postcard in the mail yesterday. that I am due. So I am definitely going to see you soon. And thank you so much once again. Okay. Thanks. I learned a ton from that conversation with Dr. Rowe. Learning about what optometrists do outside of corrective lenses, I thought was really interesting. And I'm hoping that you got as much out of that conversation as I did. Uh, I want to thank Dr. Rowe for joining us. He is, again, in Doylestown, Pennsylvania at Doylestown Family Eye on State Street. So if you're in the area, look him up, pay him a visit. He is a fantastic optometrist. He is the optometrist for my entire family, and uh, we like him a lot. Having said that, it is time to get into learning about vision. So let's go. All right, so let's get to it. We're going to start with the anatomy of the eye and the structures surrounding the eye that are accessory to vision. So even though you're listening, so it's kind of hard when you're not seeing an image or, um, or a cadaver photograph or something like that, an illustration that's just kind of explaining the anatomy of the eye, I'm still gonna give it a shot to see if I could give this explanation in a way that makes sense to you. And maybe you can listen to this while you're looking at pictures that you find online or are in your textbook. So I'm gonna start with the outside of the eye as if we're looking at the anterior of a person. And what we're gonna notice right off the bat is that our eyes are covered by eyelids. And You know what eyelids are, but we call them palpabri. There's a superior palpebra and an inferior palpebra. And that's the other name for eyelids. And when the eyes are open, There's a space between the eyelids, and that's how you can see someone's eye, or you can see through your eyelids. And that space is called the palpable fissure. Now the palpabri meet in the corners of your eyes. There's a corner by your nose called the medial commissure. And then there's a corner out by your ear called the lateral palpable commissure. So these are the palpable commissures medial and lateral. If you took a really good close look at your eyelids, especially in the corners near your nose, you'll see a tiny little hole in both the bottom and the top. So the inferior and superior palpebrae both have these little holes. That hole is called a lacrimal punctum. Plural would be puncta. And that is not where tears come from. That's actually where tears drain to. A lot of people think that tears come out of that hole. They don't. That is actually the drain. So the lacrimal fluid that's covering the surface of your eye has somewhere to go, and it drains away from that area. The lacrimal fluid comes from a gland called the lacrimal gland, which is superior and lateral to your eye. And it is an exocrine gland, which means it secretes its secretion into a duct, or ducts in this case, And then those ducts lead to the surface of your eye. So these are lacrimal glands, and their secretion is lacrimal fluid. That lacrimal fluid will coat the surface of your eye, keep it moist, keep your eyelids from sticking to it, and also maybe even have some antibacterial qualities. That lacrimal fluid, you don't want that to uh, overload, so we have drains, these lacrimal puncta, that will take them into tiny little canals called the lacrimal canaliculi, There's a superior and inferior one. They will drain it into an area called the lacrimal sac that sits in the lacrimal fossa of the lacrimal bone of your face. You got to look back at some of your skeletal stuff for this. And then the lacrimal sac eventually leads to what's called the nasolacrimal duct. And that will empty the excess lacrimal fluid into your nasal cavity. So think about when you cry. When you're crying, what's happening is you are having excessive lacrimal fluid production, which is a parasympathetic event. That excessive lacrimal fluid can no longer fit down the drain. So it overloads the drain, which is the puncta, and spills over your eyelid. And that's why the tears flow down your face. But also notice when you're crying that your nose runs. That's because that excessive lacrimal fluid is now loosening up the mucus in your nasal cavity and causing that to run. So this is what happens with crying. You also have on your palpebral eyelashes. These are guard hairs that are protective to keep things from getting into your eyes. Alright, so now let's look at the muscles that move the eye. So you've got six muscles that move your eye so that you can focus on an object. Four of them are called rectus muscles. Rectus means straight. So we've got four straight muscles and they're named for their location. the Superior rectus, inferior rectus, medial rectus, and lateral rectus. And they pull the eyeball in the direction of their location. So superior goes superiorly, inferior pulls it inferiorly, etc. We have two that are on an angle. They're not straight. We call them the oblique muscles. We have a superior oblique and an inferior oblique. The superior oblique muscle has a tendon that wraps through a little ligament called the trochlea in the superior medial corner of your eye and then it attaches to the eyeball from behind. So when that muscle contracts, it actually moves the pupils of your eyes inferomedially, which means toward the tip of your nose. That's the superior oblique muscle. The inferior oblique muscle does the opposite. It pulls the eye so that your pupils look up and away, superolaterally. That's the inferior oblique muscle. These muscles are innervated by cranial nerves. Specifically, the lateral rectus is innervated by cranial nerve 6, the abducens nerve. The superior oblique is innervated by cranial nerve 4, the trochlear nerve. And all the others are innervated by cranial nerve 3, the oculomotor nerve. You'll notice that when uh, a doctor tells you to follow her finger with your eyes only and makes this H pattern, they're actually moving their finger so that they can see if your eyes can go in all of those directions. That is a cranial nerve function test. They're testing your cranial nerves to see if there's any deficit in movement that they can trace back to one of those cranial nerves. Alright, let's look at the eye itself. So the anterior most surface of your eye which is clear that you can see through is called the cornea. And the cornea is not the lens. However, it does bend light as light goes through it. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Then you'll see the colored portion of your eye. The colored portion of your eye is the iris. And it surrounds a dark hole called the pupil. And that is where light has to enter your eye so that it can uh, strike your retina. Lateral to the cornea, you're going to see the whites of your eyes. The whites of your eyes are called the sclera. That is the sclera. And if we follow that back, you'll notice, like, oh, it looks like there's a lot of blood vessels. There's actually no blood vessels in the sclera. The sclera has, is avascular. But the layer behind or deep to the sclera does have blood vessels. And that layer is called the choroid. And that layer we can see through the white layer if those blood vessels are inflamed. So if your eyes are bloodshot, people say, there's something's causing those those blood vessels to be inflamed. And we can now see them through the whites of your eyes, which is the sclera. And then the deepest layer, deep to the choroid, is the retina. And this is the nerve tissue of your eye this is where the sensory receptors for light and vision are, and they are called photoreceptors. Alright, so let's go back to just behind the iris. So we've got a couple of regions here. We have two chambers. We have what's called the anterior chamber, which is the space between the cornea and the iris. And then we have the posterior chamber, which is the space between the iris and the lens. The lens is inside your eye behind your iris and pupil. Don't confuse that with the cornea, which looks like it would be a lens. The lens is actually a thick, connective tissue, spherical structure that is actually almost never fully spherical, in your eye that will refract light as it enters the pupil so that it can be focused on the region of your retina that has the highest concentration of photoreceptors. So this is what we call the lens. Attached to the lens are ligaments called suspensory ligaments. Sometimes you'll hear them called zonular fibers. Those ligaments are attached to ciliary bodies. The ciliary body is a muscle group that contracts and relax to pull the lens real tight and thin or to let the lens relax so it's rounder and thicker. The rounder and thicker it is, the more it can bend light. The tighter and flatter it is, the less it bends light. So these muscles are used for us to see things that are real close up, and we're going to talk about that later when we discuss the physiology of vision. There's a little apron kind of around the inside of the eye before we get to the retina called the aura serrata. And then there is a thin tube going from the lens all the way back to the optic nerve, which is where the retinal fibers all meet and leave the eye, and that little tube is called the hyaloid canal. Now the posterior part of the eye is filled with a jelly-like substance called the vitreous body, and this helps maintain the intraocular pressure of the eye so that it's not going to collapse on itself. And the anterior part of the eye is filled with a more watery substance called the aqueous humor. All right, so when we look at the posterior part of the eye, the the retina, we can see that there's two main little areas. One is called the fovea centralis, or the central fovea, and that is the area where there is the highest concentration of photoreceptors. This is the area that you want light striking on the thing you're looking at specifically, because that will be in the best focus for you, because you'll have your highest rate of visual acuity. So that means that you're going to get the most photoreceptors that you can at one time with one object that you're looking at. And then we're going to see that in the clearest high-definition resolution we could get. Now, near the fovea centralis is the macula lutea, or the macula, which is the direct center of the retina. They're close to each other, but they're not typically exactly the same. We're also going to have an area of the retina where there are no photoreceptors, and this is where all the retinal nerve fibers meet in the posterior eye and get bundled together as a nerve and leave the eye heading back toward the brain, and that is called the optic disc. It's the beginning of the optic nerve. Now you can see this optic disc with an ophthalmoscope. You can take a look through the pupil and you can see the beginning of the optic nerve. It is actually called the blind spot because there's no photoreceptors there. So light striking that part of your retina, you can't see. Luckily, we have stereoscopic vision, which means we look at the same thing with both eyes at the same time. And since the blind spots are in different locations, we don't actually have a blind spot because we've got both eyes doing what they're supposed to do. If you can only see out of one eye, then there will be a blind spot in your peripheral vision somewhere. It's never what you're looking at because you manipulate your eyes to focus the light you're looking at on the fovea centralis. It should never focus on the blind spot if you're doing it right. But in your peripheral vision, there might be a little blind spot. All right, I think that's enough to cover for anatomy of the eye. Now I think we should probably get into image formation and what it means to actually get the light we want to see focused on the right part of your retina. Now remember that vision is dependent upon light causing the reactions necessary to stimulate photoreceptors. So the only thing we actually see is light. We see light either being emitted by an object like a light bulb or the sun, or we see it reflecting off of objects. Like when you see a chair in the room, you don't really see a chair. You see the light that is reflecting off of that chair. When you see the sun in the sky, you don't really see the sun. You see where the sun was eight minutes ago because light travels at a specific speed. And it takes eight minutes for the light from the sun to get to the earth. So what you are seeing is the light that was emitted by the sun eight minutes ago. And by that point in time, the earth has already moved a little bit and the sun's position in the sky has changed. When you look at a star, you could be looking at a star that burned out 10,000 years ago. Because if that star is 20,000 light years away and burned out 10,000 years ago, we're still seeing the light that was emitted 20,000 years ago. So we're seeing the star that is no longer there, right? A light year is defined as the distance light can travel in one year. Now light travels 186,000 miles per second. So imagine how many miles a light year has to be, right? How many seconds are in a year and multiply that by 186,000. A light year actually comes out to about six. Trillion miles. Six trillion miles. But keep in mind, we are not seeing objects. We are seeing the light reflecting off of objects. When the light is gone from the room, you don't see anything, just total darkness. Some people say, oh, well, our eyes get used to the light and then we can see in the dark. Uh, Your eyes are getting used to the little bit of light that's probably getting in. You're not in a completely dark room. And so that's what you're getting used to. You can't get used to no light at all because then there's nothing to stimulate your photoreceptors. All right, so the process of vision is going to start when the light rays enter the eye via the pupil and they focus on the retina to produce a tiny inverted image, right? The reason why the image is inverted is because light travels in straight lines, right? So sometimes you'll, I'll say to my students, when you go to the beach in New Jersey, the Jersey shore, and you look out over the ocean, why aren't you seeing Portugal? And sometimes they'll say, oh, it's too far. Well, it's closer than the moon, but we can see the moon. The reason is because light travels in straight lines and the earth is round. So since the earth is curved, you can't see Portugal because it's down the slope and the light continue straight over that slope which is what we call the horizon. So light travels in straight lines so when light comes into the top of your pupil it continues on its straight line and, and strikes the bottom of your retina. And the bottom strikes the top. So light reflecting off of let's say an upright person's head is hitting low on our retina and light reflecting off of an upright person's feet is hitting high on our retina, so we end up with an upside-down person projected onto our retina. Now, the good news is that early on in infancy, we figure this out. The reflexes that we're born with kind of explain to our brain that we're not seeing the world right, and our brains have shifted our perception so that they make sense in the world. All right, so remember that also light travels at different speeds through different materials. So this means that light will refract or bend when it travels through something other than air, including a lens, right? So the, if you wear glasses, the lenses of your glasses are meant to bend light so that they strike the correct part of your retina. Contact lenses the same. And so because of this refraction, we can focus the light where we want it to be which is on the fovea centralis, the most highly concentrated area of photoreceptors that we have on our retina. That's what we want. The first thing that's gonna bend the light or refract the light is the cornea. So the cornea is the first separate medium that light has to travel through. And actually most refraction takes place through the cornea. And the lens just fine tunes the image. So the light goes through the cornea, bends a bit, goes through the pupil, and then hits the lens through the pupil on the other side of the iris. The lens will then refract it more so that the light rays we're looking at, which means they're reflecting off an object that we want to focus on, are striking the retina at that fovea centralis. That's where we're going to get the clearest, most high-resolution image. So think about it. If you look across the room at someone... You can still see other people who are sitting next to them, but they're not in focus. If you want to focus on them, you got to contract those uh, extrinsic muscles of the eye I mentioned earlier and shift your pupils a little bit so that you can manipulate the light rays reflecting off of that person and have them hitting the fovea centralis. That's what you want to do. So that's what we do. We can still see other things that we're not focusing on. They're just blurry. The other thing that's going to happen is we need to stretch the lens out to the right degree of stretch so that we can focus the light properly. The shorter the light rays are, the harder they are to bend, which means you want the lens to be thick and round. The thicker it is, the more it will bend the light. To do that, we have to contract the ciliary muscles that are surrounding it. When they contract, they are a circular muscle When they contract, the hole in the middle of them gets smaller, which means tension is released on the suspensory ligaments and the lens can rebound to its normal shape, which is thick and round. We do that on things that are closer than 6 meters from us, or about 20 feet. Things that are further than that, we don't need to worry about uh, contracting those muscles. The, The flat, tight lens is good enough to bend those longer light rays. So this is called accommodation. And when you get older, the lens loses elasticity. So it doesn't rebound to the thick round shape as easy. And that's why people at around 40 years old start needing reading glasses. Because when they want to look at things that are close to them, no matter how hard the ciliary muscles contract, they can't release the tension enough on the lens to get it to rebound back to its full round structure because it lost the elasticity to do that. All right, so when the light strikes those photoreceptors, what we need to do now is to convert the energy from light to electricity. We call that transduction. We need to generate an electrical signal in the neurons of the optic nerve that can then propagate to the central nervous system. So sensory transduction is the conversion of one type of energy, light, in this instance, to another type of energy, electrical energy, because we're going to get a receptor potential, which is our local potential, and then that's going to reach threshold and create an action potential, and then that that action potential is going to be a nerve impulse, or a nerve signal, that is traveling along the neurons of the optic nerve toward the brain. So that's what we need to do, and this happens through a series of events that is stimulated by light and ends with the creation of a receptor potential in the photoreceptors, action potentials in the neurons, and a nerve signal in the optic nerve. Alright, the most posterior part of the retina is called the pigment epithelium. It's a darkly pigmented layer that absorbs stray light so it doesn't degrade the visual image. So we don't want all this like scatter light making nerve signals. So That pigment's going to absorb stray light so we get a good, solid image. Anterior to the pigment are three layers of cells that serve as the neural components of the retina, and they're called the photoreceptor cells, bipolar cells, and ganglion cells. The photoreceptor cells generate a chemical or electrical signal and are mostly rods and cones. You've probably heard of rods and cones. There's about 130 million rods, and they're responsible for night vision, and they can only produce shades of gray. There's only about 6.5 million cones, and they function in brighter light, and they are how we get color vision. Rods and cones synapse with the dendrites of bipolar cells. These bipolar cells are the first-order neurons of the visual pathway. The bipolar cells then synapse with ganglion cells, which are the largest neurons in the retina. They are the second-order neurons of the visual pathway, and their axons are going to form the optic nerve. So this is something different than we've seen in other sensations. The optic nerve is not the first-order neuron of vision. The optic nerve is actually the second-order neuron of vision. In the past, the sensory neuron was always the first-order neuron. Not in this case. we got too many things going on in the eyes for that to be the case. Okay. Even though the, the ganglion cells are not responsible for image formation, some of them do absorb light directly and transmit signals to the brainstem to control pupil diameter and your body's dark light cycles. So think about vision. Vision is not just about being able to perceive an image. We need vision to tell us whether or not it's time to go to bed. We also use light striking the retina to determine how wide our pupils should be. So the iris has muscles that will contract and relax to control how much light is entering your eyes. So in bright light situations, your pupils might constrict because there's too much light coming in, and you wanna regulate that. In low light situations, your pupils will dilate so we can get in as much light as possible. So we need a stimulus for that, and the stimulus for that reflex is light striking the retina. Changes in that pigment of photoreceptors stimulate the creation of a nerve signal in the retinal nerve fibers. So I want to talk about how that happens, and I'm going to use rods as the example. Uh, And I'm pretty sure cones work the same way. I don't think we know for completely sure, But it's very likely that cones work the same way as rods. So rods contain a pigment called rhodopsin, which is also called visual purple. And it's a combination of two different molecules, obsin and retinol. In the dark, each rod steadily releases the neurotransmitter glutamate into a synaptic cleft that it shares with a bipolar cell. And the retinol molecule has a bent shape called cis-retinol. However, when the rod absorbs light, it is transformed into a straight form called trans-retinol. So cis-retinol, which is bent, straightens out into trans-retinol. This form then breaks away from the opsin, leaving the opsin colorless instead of violet. So instead of being visual purple, it loses its color. So what we call this is bleaching. So this is called bleaching. It's when the transretinol leaves the opsin, taking away its violet or purple color. The opsin then triggers a reaction that causes the rod to stop secreting glutamate. Now within about 5 minutes, about 50% of the transretinol is converted back to the cisretinol and rejoins with the opsin to make functional rhodopsin. In bright light, this recovery can't keep pace with the bleaching, and the stimulation continues. Some bipolar cells are inhibited by glutamate and excited when its secretion stops. Other bipolar cells, however, are excited by glutamate and therefore respond when light intensity drops. When excited, the bipolar cells synapse with the ganglion cells of the optic nerve and create a nerve signal that travels toward the central nervous system. That nerve signal is now going to run along the visual projection pathway. So let's talk about what that means. As your eye scans a scene, it's gonna pass areas of greater and lesser brightness. Their images on the retina cause a rapidly changing pattern of bipolar cell responses as the light intensity on a patch of retina rises and falls. This helps your central nervous system get the data it needs to perceive a proper image. Now remember, the bipolar cells of the retina are the first-order neurons of the visual pathway. The second-order neurons are the retinal ganglion cells, whose axons are the fibers of the optic nerve. The optic nerves leave each orbit through the optic canal, and they come together in the area of the pituitary gland to form an X-like pattern called the optic chiasm. From there, nerve fibers are referred to as the optic tracts. So it goes, optic nerves are the most distal. They're the ones closest to the retina. The optic chiasm is where the optic nerves cross each other close to the pituitary gland. And then the path they take heading back toward the brain from the optic chiasm are called optic tracts. Here's the interesting thing, though. Not all the fibers of the optic nerves cross the midline at the optic chiasm. Only specific ones do. And this is the weird part, right? So you've got an eye, and let's say it's your left eye. And your left eye has a, a medial retina close to your nose and a lateral retina close to your ear. The fibers of the medial retina that come together in the optic nerve, they go back through the optic nerve and When they reach the optic chiasm, they cross to the other side of your brain. And same thing with your right eye. The the medial retinal cells go down through the optic nerve, reach the optic chiasm, and cross to the other side of your brain. The fibers from the lateral retina, or what we call the temporal retina, go back through the optic nerve. But when they reach the optic chiasm, they stay away from it and stay ipsilateral and become part of the ipsilateral optic tract. So, here's the way to think of it. Nerve fibers of the medial or what we call nasal retina cross the optic chiasm and become part of the contralateral optic tract, whereas nerve fibers of the lateral or temporal retina, they stay on their own side when they reach the optic chiasm, bypassing it, and become part of the ipsilateral optic tract. Remember, ipsilateral means on the same side of the body, contralateral means on the other side of the body. So that's a really interesting thing, and also it's clinically really significant because lesions of these nerves, whether it's optic nerve, optic chiasm, or optic tract, lesions in those regions will cause different visual symptoms depending on where they are. Some will affect both eyes, some will only affect one eye, some will only affect the peripheral vision of both eyes. It's very interesting Uh, clinical significance right there. Okay, remember that since light travels in straight lines, that light reflecting off of objects in the lateral visual field of each eye strike the medial retina and vice versa. So only images from the lateral fields of view are perceived by the contralateral cerebrum because they strike the medial retina, which goes through the optic chiasm. And objects that strike the temporal retina from the medial field of view, they stay ipsilateral. So that's another thing if someone has symptoms where you can see the symptoms in their visual field, what parts of their visual field have they lost? You can make a prediction for where along the visual pathway there might be a problem. Most axons of the optic tracts end in the lateral geniculate nucleus of the thalamus, where they synapse with neurons of what's called the optic radiation. These white matter fibers project to an area in the occipital lobe called the primary visual cortex. And this is where conscious awareness of vision takes place. So we can perceive an image based on the way light is striking the retina. Damage to the occipital lobe can cause blindness even if the eyes are functioning perfectly normal. Now remember, vision isn't just about making an image and perceiving an image. A few optic nerve fibers end up in the superior colliculi and pretectal nuclei of the brainstem's midbrain. The superior colliculi control the visual reflexes of the extrinsic eye muscles so that we can reflexively move our eyes in response to light. The pretectal nuclei are involved in the accommodation reflex for near vision, as well as the reflex that causes your pupils to constrict in response to light. If something moves real close to you and your lenses have to get thicker, that reflex comes from those pre nuclei. If your pupils constrict because there's a lot of light, also pre nuclei. But if something flashes of light in the corner of the room and your eyes dart over to see what it is, that's superior colliculi reflex. All right, so that's a lot on vision. So we're covering anatomy, we talk about image formation, we talk about a little bit of light physics, not a whole lot, just a little bit, just enough. And we talk about the visual projection pathway so you can see what parts of the central nervous system that these signals are traveling to. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate, again, all of your support. I've been getting a lot of emails lately. People are really excited that the podcast is back I love getting that. Uh, Usually they're very, very supportive. A lot of times they're just begging me for more episodes, which I'm doing the best I can on. And and, uh, we got a lot of episodes in a row for the last few weeks. So that's really good. Uh, But I really do appreciate getting those emails. So feel free to email me. It is minus55media at gmail.com. So feel free to email me if you have any questions. If there's something you'd like me to talk about on the podcast, I'm happy to do that. Um, that is um, that is kind of a fun part of this for me. So please, again, feel free to email me at minus55media at gmail.com. Once again, I want to thank my guest today, Dr. Benjamin Rowe from Doylestown Family Eye. He is an optometrist on State Street in Doylestown. So thank you again, Dr. Rowe. And I want to thank all my listeners. Once again, without you, this doesn't happen. So thank you again, And I am looking forward to seeing you for the next episode, which will cover hearing and equilibrium. We're still in the nervous system. We're still in sense organs. We're almost done. See you next time. Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit is a production of Minus 55 Media. Please take the time to rate the podcast. And don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Student Help for AP. That's Student Help, the number four, AP. There's a whole lot of tutor videos on there that I think you're going to find helpful. Special thanks to my family, Bucks County Community College, and McGraw-Hill Education, where you can find Anatomy & Physiology Digital Suite, my low-cost, tutor video-based digital learning solution for anatomy and physiology, already being used at several colleges and universities.